Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we have the final episode in our little lead-up to the American Sociological Association's annual meeting held this weekend, August 10th to 13th in Philadelphia. And let me tell you, we've got a special guest for you. We are joined by one of my closest mentors, Dr. Carla Pfeffer, who is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of South Carolina. Dr. Pfeffer's research is at the intersection of sociological inquiry into contemporary families, genders, sexualities, and bodies that are considered marginal. Her award-winning book, Queering Families, The Postmodern Partnerships of Cisgender Women and Transgender Men, published in 2017 by Oxford University Press, represents one of the first deep explorations into the lives of cisgender partners of transgender men as they navigate the complexities of everyday life. Carla's work has also been published in well-established journals such as the American Journal of Sociology, Gender and Society, the Journal of Marriage and Family, and Population Review, in addition to many other outlets. Carla is also a fantastic teacher whom I've learned many a lesson. So as you make your way to Philadelphia, whether by car, train, bus, or foot, we hope you enjoy this pre-ASA discussion about her work techniques for dealing with controversial material, as well as her many tips for young researchers and teachers. So please sit back and come on this journey with us. Today, I'm joined by a very special person to me, both personally and professionally, one of my dissertation committee members, Dr. Carla Pfeffer, who is an associate professor of Sociology and Women's Studies at the University of South Carolina, my alma mater. Um, Carla, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Derek. It's wonderful to have you on. I've really been excited and, and trying to get you on, pestering you a little bit to uh, to come on the show. It didn't take um, that I'm much really... pestering. <laughs> a few emails, <laughs> um, but yes, nothing much. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. So uh, before we begin, I always like to to have guests sort of introduce themselves um, because their introductions are so much better than mine. So so Carla, if you wouldn't mind, could you just introduce yourself and your your research and and uh, what you work on? Sure. So I am generally a sociologist who kind of is at the intersection of sexualities, sex and gender, um, body and embodiment, and the family. Or families. And my research largely focuses on um, or has focused on cisgender women partners of transgender men. So these are, you know, transgender men are folks who are categorized male at birth who later come to live in the world socially as men. I have interviewed their women partners, their cisgender women partners. Um, Cisgender just meaning folks whose gender identity corresponds to the way that they were categorized at birth. Um, they don't have any discordance there. So I've conducted inter- interviews with that population. Um, I have taken a look at people's kind of explanations for what makes people different. So um, what kind of is the cause of gender, sexuality, and race and class differences? Uh, do people think it's genes or environment? Um, kind of getting a sense of, of their take on those sorts of things. Um, Most recently, I'm moving into a research project that is taking a look at transgender men's experiences of pregnancy 
and their experiences with reproductive health care. So those are just kind of three of the areas that uh, my work has taken a look at at those intersections. So your uh, your dissertation research was the uh, foundation of your book, Queering Families, the Postmodern Partnerships of Cisgender Women and Transgender Men, correct? It was, yes. Could you tell us a little bit um, uh, about the creation and development of that uh, research uh, and the book uh, more generally? Sure. So when I was an undergraduate, this this is going to go way back, Derek. When I was an undergraduate, I was studying uh, self-identified lesbians' experiences in psychotherapy. And I was interviewing folks, and their stories were really interesting, but I noticed that a couple of um, individuals started talking to me about thinking about transitioning or having a partner who was transitioning or thinking about transitioning. And this was way back in the late 1990s. And so I asked folks, well, what do you mean transitioning? And at that point, I got the sense of, well, you know, my my thesis on lesbians' experiences in psychotherapy might be interesting, but it's not as interesting as these experiences that people are telling me about that I haven't really read about and that I haven't really heard too many people talking about. And so kind of got my wheels spinning at that point in time that this might be an area that I wanted to explore. So fast forward to graduate school, I decided this was the area that I wanted to pursue. So I started um, a research project that basically involved interviewing 50 cisgender women partners of transgender men about their experiences in their relationships. And how did you identify your um, respondents and, and the or? Respondents is a word I don't particularly uh, like, but the people that you included in the co-production of your of your uh, dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, how did you identify them, and how did you gain access to that group? Yeah, you know, my advisors were concerned when I first talked to them about this project because they said, "How are you going to find these folks? Um, how will you ever find fifty of these folks?" <laughs> this is the early two thousands, and. You know, I thought, too, that I would have an incredibly difficult time recruiting folks, recruiting participants. But I found that once I reached some people on, gosh, you know, this was so long ago, I think I was using MySpace for recruitment, um, using snowball sampling. And once I had a few participants, they told folks that they knew in their online support communities, and they told folks that they knew. And I was able to recruit 50 individuals without, you know, a lot of struggle, really, um, which was surprising to myself. It was surprising to my advisors. But so many people just said to me, you know, we're finally able to tell our story. We're so interested that somebody is asking and wants to listen to what it is that we have to say. That's fantastic. And and what was the overall uh, thesis uh, and argument of that particular uh, research? No, I think there are several. Um, one of them is that in in the thesis, I really wanted to challenge a couple different things. So in the book, I really wanted to challenge a couple different ideas. And one of those ideas is that transgender people and their partners bear particular or special responsibility toward upending the entire gendered order um, for families just in life. And I felt like I would get that when I would talk about my research. A lot of people would say, well, look, these folks are on the vanguard of gender and sexuality. Don't they want to subvert social norms? And to me, it always seemed obvious that, well, what we want to do and what we end up doing because of lifelong periods of socialization and systems and structures that challenge our behaviors and our desires is that a lot of us act in ways that we're most familiar to seeing, familiar with seeing. 
um, and patterns that we're most used to in our lives. And so I wanted to challenge that notion that transgender people bore a special responsibility or that their partners would bear special responsibility to subverting the patriarchy, if we want to call it that. I also wanted to kind of press against this notion of what a family is. So it seems often when we talk about families, we're talking about cisgender, heterosexual people with 2.5 kids, picket fence, couple dogs. I wanted to challenge that notion and think about families as places where we find mutual support, um, support of all different kinds, um, where we find community and togetherness, where we struggle, um, where we build home, whatever home may be. And that may involve children. It may not. It may involve cohabitation. It may not. It may involve legal connections. It may not. Um, So there were a couple different areas I wanted to challenge with the book. How did you um, navigate? And this is a question I I commonly ask, particularly people who deal um, or researchers who deal with people um, in their research. How did you navigate your own place in that research field? Right. So I did have individuals who would ask me at the time, you know, what what is the reason you're interested in this topic? What's your connection to the topic? And I always ask myself, well, why are people asking the questions that they're asking? And so for me, one of the reasons that I knew they were asking that question is because transgender people, um, their partners, communities have so often been exploited by researchers who kind of want scintillating details or who kind of approach the topic sensationalistically in some sort of way. And I wanted to make it clear to folks that that was not my kind of reason for wanting to learn more about these communities. At the time, I was also a part of the community. So at the time I began my interviews, um, about midway through when I was working on the interviews, I was also in a partner. I was also a cisgender woman partner of a transgender man. So I was able to tell folks at the time, you know, well, I'm also a member of the community. Um, But that transitioned over the course of the research project. Qualitative research projects are really long. And so at a certain point, I was no longer a cisgender woman partner of a trans man. And so for me, that began to kind of beg questions about, well, what does it mean to be part of the community that you're researching? Are you still part of the community that you're researching once you've left particular relationships? So thinking about researcher transitions in and out of communities has been important to me and my research. This is fascinating, particularly because um, on last week's uh, episode, we interviewed uh, Dr. Ju Young Lee from the University of Toronto, and he spoke a lot about reflexivity and his own um, positionality uh, and tensions of positionality that he had in his own research. And he urged us to move away from this sort of uh, insider versus outsider or uh, interviewer versus interviewee sort of uh, the the dichotomies that we create, and he talked about getting down and and being down with his particular uh, research project, um, and this tension of positionality um, sort of really stood out to me uh, in his book. And I I wonder um, what sort of language you used um, to to get at this uh, tension between being part of the community and not being part of the community at the sort of uh, same time and uh, in a sort of continuum of uh, positionality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I come from a, a you know, line of training connected to feminist standpoint epistemology. So kind of for me, it's always been important to articulate where I'm coming from, where I'm positioned at any given moment in relation to the individuals that I may be interviewing, um, how that may transition or change across time and why that matters. Um, but I'm also, you know, very aware of 
critic of critiques of standpoint feminist epistemology and you know the understanding that those standpoints are always partial and they're always shifting um and so to me it's been important to kind of think about my research that i conduct is just one contribution to the body of scholarship that exists around the topics that i study just one voice one position one that is shifting um, or has shifted in the past, but that is, it's just one. And so, you know, I don't, I don't aim for authentic, authenticity of voice or, you know, claiming that my voice is representative of the participants that are in my study or my studies. Instead, what I want to do is just kind of put out there where I'm coming from, but then make sure that there's space created for other folks to tell their stories from other positions, other perspectives. This really reminds me, for the listener, um, I sat in a a wonderful seminar with Dr. Pfeffer uh, in my second year of PhD um, called, I believe, uh, Feminist Epistemologies and Methodologies. Um, and we, t- we spoke about standpoint theory and, and, uh, and understanding multiple perspectives and whatever you say as a researcher or as a scholar, it's always partial. Um, and we, sp- we spent uh, 14, 15 weeks um, discussing this, and it seemed like we were just scratching the surface. Right. Um, so it's really interesting and really uh, helpful for me um, listening to you speak about this because it really um, uh, brings me back into that room and really um, uh, helps me resituate some of my own work and some of, of the things I'm doing uh, uh, currently. But on that note, I kind of wanted to sort of pivot uh, and ask you about what you've been working on currently or what you've been working on recently. Sure. So right now I'm working, we've just begun really, we've just begun to launch uh, an international um, project that has collaborators that span across the United Kingdom, um, the United States, Italy, and Australia. Um, This project is uh, led by Sally Hines, who's at Leeds. And the project is focusing on an international exploration of trans male experiences of pregnancy. So we're taking a look at transgender men and talking about what it's like to be a pregnant man um, in a number of different social and cultural contexts. And in addition to talking about trans, talking to trans men about their experiences with pregnancy, we're also going to be conducting interviews with young trans men, kind of thinking about well, how do you think about your reproductive future and have healthcare providers talk to you about your reproductive options? Um, Kind of just what are you thinking about for your own future? And then another component of this project will be interviewing healthcare providers who specialize in trans healthcare and asking them about the services that they provide Um, and using our interviews with trans men to kind of let them know what we're hearing from folks about maybe what it is that they're missing, what they're doing well, what they're doing not as well, and getting their take on those perspectives as well. And then finally, we're going to be creating a documentary so that this project can produce not only empirical knowledge that will be in journals and hopefully will be you know, part of a monograph, but will also have a wider kind of focus and dissemination possibility. It kind of goes with uh, your work, which seems to be um, very diverse uh, and very large scale. Um, you both queering families and and this project seem to be uh, very uh, challenging to think about and daunting. Uh, I think about in terms of not only how many interviews you've had, but 
how widespread geographically your respondents um, are. And it seems like this project is very similar. We have a great research team. So we have researchers, again, that are in the UK. We have you know, three folks working on the project in the in the UK. We have someone working in Italy. We have someone working in Australia. Um, I'm here working in the US. And so we've been able to divide the work in the project in a way that feels manageable. And, you know, that in a way that I think the tensions and the struggles that we're facing are really useful. So one of the very first things that we did was put together um, policy analyses. And we quickly realized, well, wow, we're seeing such different um, results in the different areas that we're in. So a policy analysis for the UK looks very different from a policy analysis for the US. So the UK, with the way in which they provide health care to all of their citizens, looks radically different from how we structure it here in the United States and what that means for the kinds of policies that apply or don't apply for transgender health care and reproductive health care in particular. So we're seeing all sorts of differences across those cultural and social contexts um, from the policy level down to the practice level, um, but in ways that I think will be really illuminating in the end as we begin to piece everything together and begin to do some comparative analyses. A central sort of premise of this podcast is uncovering um, the noise and uncovering the areas of tension and the things that confuse you about your um, research. Um, so I want to present the question to you of what do you find particularly noisy or confusing about this particular uh, research uh, project? You know, it's this project. It's the project that I've been involved with previously. It's research projects that I've thought about in my head and maybe have never pursued um, for various reasons. But for me, one of the central tensions, one of the central bits of noise that keeps emerging is that issue of positionality and thinking about, well, do I have a place at the table to be talking about these things? And so when I was doing my research on focusing on cisgender women of um, cisgender women partners of transgender men, I was a part of that community for a portion of the time I was doing the research. And so I felt like I did belong doing that research. Now that I've shifted into studying trans men's experiences with healthcare, I think there's a very valid question or sets of very valid questions to be raised about, well, why me? Why am I here doing this research and serving as the United States investigator on this project? Um, and this is, you know, a, a valid question. It's one I think that is much broader than academia. So these are important questions to be raised. And I think that that question of who deserves a seat at the table, who gets the seat at the table, is one that we have to keep engaging with. And as I said before, I think that there's room for lots of different viewpoints and perspectives on these stories. But when we keep seeing them come from the same perspectives and the same standpoints is when I think we need to, to kind of utilize the most caution. So how, how would you respond to somebody um, who were, who was to critique you on that very um, point and, and and ask you directly, Dr. Pfeffer, sociologist, professor, what gives you the right to speak about these topics? Right. I mean, I think, first of all, I would say that's an excellent and a very valid question. And then I would talk about kind of the importance that or the importance that we've taken um in making sure that our advisory board, so forming an advisory board and making sure that it consists of members of the trans community, 
of um, healthcare providers that are working on trans-centered healthcare, um, making sure that our project is not one that is comprised entirely of cisgender scholars working on this particular issue. So making sure that it is inclusive in particular ways and also asking for feedback from the community um, as we move along and move forward with this project has been important. Mm -hmm. I think um, bringing that sort of standpoint theoretical foundation to the entire research project is very interesting. It seems like that's um, something you're trying to do from not just the dissemination of the research, but from the very, very beginning, bringing in multiple standpoints into the research. Right. So I want to uh, ask you about, um, so you're a wonderful teacher, and I know this from experience. <laughs> I've, I've taken a class with you, uh, and you've uh, mentored me uh, exceptionally well um, through my early um, career. And I'm curious how you translate some of the lessons that you've learned um, from research, from teaching, um, from your entire career, um, how, how you translate some of the lessons uh, into the classroom and into your own pedagogy? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think a big part of it is kind of I start with this don't be a jerk perspective. So <laughs> kind of just I, I feel like maybe this is coming from a working class, first generation college student back background, but I feel like I had to cut through a lot of the noise when I first came to the university. And some students deal with that by kind of developing this imposter syndrome. And I, I would certainly say I had some of that. I still have some of that, I'm sure, that goes on. But another reaction that I had was just to become reactive, to kind of rebel a little bit and to mm -hmm. kind of challenge some of the normative structures in academia and to talk back in academia. And so I try to translate that into the classroom and making sure that students know that they can and should talk back, but that their talk back has to be kind of backed up with evidence. So um, I'm always asking my students to listen and to listen actively, but also to, when they speak, support what it is that they're thinking um, or what they're expressing with evidence, right? So I feel like one of the things that I don't want to happen inside of my classrooms is for them to become these spaces where it feels like you're in the middle of a talk show, like it's Dr. Phil time or Oprah. And I want to have conversations that are, are informed by what it is that we're all there to do, which is to discuss scholarship, um, but to not wholeheartedly buy into the scholarship that we're reading, to, to be able to actively engage with it in critical ways, um, to find our own voices, for students to find their own voices. That's very important to me um, in my teaching. Again, speaking from experience, uh, you, you do that quite well. And you really challenged me personally um, to um, locate myself within the classroom. And, and often um, throughout both of my, uh, I did graduate work at two in two different departments. And throughout both of them, I found my time, I, I found sometimes that I was a very typical white male academic um, trying to sort of take over conversations and being the voice and um, being the most active in seminars. And you really challenged me to uh, take a step back and, and look at or position myself um, amongst my colleagues in discussion and realize that um, my take is not ontologically uh, more appropriate or more correct. But I'm, I'm a little bit curious uh, if you've ever dealt with um, very challenging situations in the classroom uh, where uh, students didn't or weren't able to recognize um, 
some of these things and weren't able to recognize their own position and were acting a little bit inappropriately. Yes. I'm trying to think back if um, you were in the class that I'm thinking of right now. <laughs> Hopefully not. So um, I, I mean, I, yes, absolutely. And I think I've used some of these strategies that are kind of these little devices that a lot of instructors will use kind of the, what is it? Three and then me kind of practices where you want to kind of remind folks that if you find yourself talking all the time in class or the first to raise your hand or the first to contribute, try taking the perspective of letting three other individuals talk before you insert yourself and just don't take up so much space in the classroom. And I think that that can be hard because, and I want to kind of recognize too, that one of the reasons I think people jump in and fill that space is out of anxiety. Um, graduate school, undergraduate classes are often spaces of high anxiety where people feel like they have to account for their intelligence or their right to be sitting in that seat or to be involved in that classroom or in that space. And so I think people will rush to fill silences or rush to contribute in some cases when they are feeling that anxiety. So, um, you know, sometimes it's about talking to folks outside of class and setting up appointments to say, hey, you know, I noticed that you've had a lot to say in class recently, you know, and maybe that's not leaving enough space for some other folks to share their perspectives. Can we talk about that? So trying to use different strategies to connect to individuals, but also in the classroom, making sure that I signal to other students that I'm noticing the dynamic that's happening and that my aim is to intervene in some way that is not, you know, it is not harsh. That is not mean necessarily, but that is definitely redirecting the energy of the class is important. It sounds like these lessons would be relatively uh, easier to do in a seminar style classroom. But um, we know, uh, and our listeners might uh, know that sometimes you're teaching 70 to 100 to maybe even more um, students uh, at a time. And can you take some of the lessons that you might have in a sort of uh, smaller seminar style classroom and bring it to a larger audience? One of the ways that I've tried to do that is by, you know, if I feel like a certain student is dominating conversations, I will break the larger class into smaller groups and have them engage in smaller groups. And so what that means is that that one student may be dominating the one individual group that they're in, but not the nine other groups that are in the room. And so then when all of the groups come back together to share their experiences, then you're going to get possibly that one student who always chimes in, but you may also get those nine other perspectives, which helps to kind of, I think, not mute, but certainly to dilute a bit of that singular voice in the classroom. I think it's also completely fair to assign leadership in groups that's different from what you may see emerging in your classroom usually. So if you have those 10 groups in a larger classroom, you could basically say, okay, I want the person whose you know, last name begins with the latest letter in the alphabet to go first, or however you want to divide it up. You could even assign them directly just so you're getting different views and perspectives. There are lots of those little strategies that I've used in classes that seem to kind of break some of that tension when one stu student is dominating. So I want to get back a little bit to um, your your work, because I don't want our listeners to think that I'm just sort of uh, asking you just about uh, teaching or anything, um, uh, because, I, well, selfishly, I'm asking you about these things because I think you, um, you are, are very attuned to classroom dynamics. 
But particularly, and, and a point that stood out to me in my own experience with you, is uh, how you deal with very complex and controversial issues in a way that's accessible for many people. And we live in a time uh, in, in Canada and in uh, the United States of Jordan Peterson and uh, people like him sort of uh, producing these ideas and disseminating these ideas that are controversial and doing it in a very antagonistic uh, manner. And I'm curious, um, as somebody who researches and researches and who is an expert of sexuality and gender, have you noticed a difference in students since uh, the sort of rise of uh, Jordan Peterson and similar uh, pseudo-academic discourses? I think people are just sad. I think people are sad. I think they're anxious. I think they're depressed. Um, I, you know, I think, I feel like I've, I've been seeing people withdraw more, um, you know, maybe just this sense of instability, I think is, is pretty far reaching. And, you know, I don't have a great answer for how to intervene in that. And initially, it seemed that, you know, folks were moving toward the answer of, well, it's about more listening. It's about more togetherness. It's about less divisiveness and just making people feel and understand. Or if people can feel, then they will understand. And I'm, I'm no longer sure that I believe that. Um, I, so yeah, I don't know. For me, I've just noticed more students in my office hours, more graduate students wanting to have conversations um, about just how to keep on with their work, to how to keep on being motivated in such demoralizing times. And my answer is always that I believe that the work still matters, um, that whatever mm -hmm. dynamics may be in control and in play at the time, that work that challenges authority, challenges normativity, challenges kind of dominant social structures is still valuable, um, whether or not it is accepted in the mainstream or challenged or ridiculed in the mainstream, um, it will always be important and necessary. I completely agree. Um, and I think on, on that note, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on um, the role of the academic in the public sphere. So you've mentioned um, that the, the work is still valuable, but oftentimes the work can't speak for itself, right? The work can't um, disseminate itself. It can't um, find its way into the public sphere. So I'm curious to, to get your opinion or your take on, on how to ensure or how to help your own research make uh, a change or, or be as important as um, you suggest that it is. Well, I think that, you know, what you're doing here is really important. So podcasts, something that is more broadly accessible documentaries um, that, you know, are not just paid screener documentaries, but more accessible documentaries. Um, those are important. My own book is beyond the price range um, where it is marketed right now. It's beyond the price range for most of the individuals that I interviewed for the project itself. So for me, it's been important to every request that I get from folks for an article, for a chapter, um, for a book, to find ways to make sure that it can end up in their hands at little to no cost. And so sometimes that means maybe, you know, taking some circuitous routes and a little bit of laxity with copyright mm -hmm. law and um, leaving yourself 
open and vulnerable to that sort of thing because you judge that it's more important for people to have access to your research and the findings from your research, especially when they contributed centrally to it, than it is for you to maintain fidelity to copyright laws and journals and book publishers. Um, So I think that part of being, uh, for me, a public sociologist is to you know, place myself to some degree in in slight ways, um, positions of vulnerability, if it means greater access to participants, to the broader public, to research findings and publications. That is a a very interesting take and something we haven't heard. We've been uh, interviewing several sociologists and I've asked this question several times. I've worded it a little bit differently, but I've asked a lot about the role of the academic and this, this open yourself to vulnerability is, is very, very interesting. Um, and a, a little bit of an aside, if any listener is interested in um, purchasing Carla's book or getting a hold of Car- Carla's book, I have a few copies. So if you want to tweet uh, at WTNCast, I will uh, ensure that I get uh, one of the copies out to you. Uh, sorry about that, Carla. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Well, then I, I think I, you know, I also want to say that there is another great book coming out called Other Please Specify Queer Methods in Sociology. Mm-hmm. It's a book that was edited by um, Delaine Compton, Kristen Schilt, and Tay Meadow. And I have a chapter in that book too, where I discuss kind of some of these strategies that I've undertaken in my own career that may not always be seen as completely by the books, but that for me are absolutely necessary for making me feel like the the same person or a similar person as the one that I started um, at. So, you know, again, working class, first generation college student, um, the, the ways of academia are often strange and weird and backward to me. And I do what I can to kind of flip all of that back upside down. Um, and part of that is what I talk about in that chapter. So hopefully that's helpful to folks too, if they want to read some more stuff about how, you know, you can think about and do things differently in academia. Could you maybe expand a little bit on that chapter on, on some of the um, tactics um, that you're, sure. you're talking about here? Just a little bit, give us a little bit of a teaser. So come on, peer review, right? Double blind peer review. We are all so beholden to double blind peer review in academia. And in the chapter, I talk about double blind peer review as somewhat a mythical construct in practice, especially in the 21st century. So when we all get an article for review, if we're in a small enough disciplinary or subdisciplinary area, we're likely to know the individual who is working on that project. And that just happens in small subdisciplinary areas. And I think it's really important for us to still get eyes on our pieces that are specialist eyes. So I don't think that folks should be automatically disqualified from reviewing a piece simply because it was fairly easy for them to discern who the author might be. I think the bigger question is, can you offer a fair and honest and balanced review on a work even if you do know who the authors might be. So I think that in practice, that double blind notion um, kind of flies out the window pretty quickly. And I think it also does so um, if we think about the fact that you can Google any title now. And so folks are very capable of Googling a paper title that they get 
and ostensibly figuring out who an author might be. Maybe that um, mm-hmm. somebody presented a paper at a conference early on or has something listed on their Vita. Those papers come up pretty easily. And so I think it's important for us not to kind of operate on this myth of double-blind peer review and instead think about how we can think of ourselves as a community of academic peer reviewers doing the service of peer review in a way that isn't beholden to the necessarily necessarily a double-blind standard, but a standard of high-quality, rigorous, challenging um, research. And do you think there are particular um, publishing outlets that are doing this or, or being a little bit more, uh, what is the word here, uh, being a little bit more relaxed about um, their double-blind uh, procedures? I'm not sure. I mean, I've I've seen in certain journals that they use a single blind approach or don't really blind at all or announce who the reviewers were once they publish a manuscript. So I do know that this is happening in some areas um, and in some journals. But by and large, I think, you know, there is just kind of this notion of still, oh, if I get a manuscript and I know who it is, I better not take on that review. I think a better practice is to touch base with the editor and say, look, I think I may know who this is. Um, I think I can offer a fair and balanced review. Are you comfortable with that? Or should you, you know, would you prefer to move on to the next reviewer? I think just open, being open and being transparent with editors is important. But I do also think it's important for individuals in those niches of disciplinary areas to get eyes on their paper of scholars who are specialists in that area. Yeah, I think so. And and especially with uh, ResearchGate and Academia.edu and uh, Social Archive and all these, and Twitter, uh, it's becoming increasingly uh, Mm -hmm. challenging to uh, ensure that anything is blind. Uh, It's oftentimes, uh, at least in my own experience, the author could also... Uh, identify the editor and the peer reviewer, sorry. Right, right. And I agree that I think that um, it doesn't necessarily need to be blind as long as um, the reviews are fair uh, and uh, they are an expert and and somebody that is a specialist in that area can um, get their eyes on. So I, I would agree with that personally. And I think that some of this was developed after a lot of struggling and hearing about colleagues colleagues in some of these subdisciplinary areas, especially sex and gender and sexualities and body and embodiment, who would keep getting the same set of uninformed reviews on their manuscripts, especially manuscripts submitted to some of the discipline's flagship or top journals. And so I think it became kind of this ethos of, well, wow, these really are competing interests. On one hand, you have kind of the, the academic standard of blind review on the double blind peer review. And on the other hand, you have, I think, a competing and equal interest of wanting to have reviewers that really know what they're talking about in, in an area and aren't just applying normative standards of mainstream sociology to work that is often marginalized. This is a point that I really took from um, from your mentorship and approaching the traditional scientific model uh, as something that is imbued in a particular culture, a particular history that can't be disconnected from uh, what many have called this sort of patriarchy. Uh, And I think that that is really uh, interesting when you look at uh, even sociology as a discipline. It's still very hierarchical. It's still very much founded on uh, traditional values and traditional 
um, logic models that I, I can't also can't be uh, disconnected from that particular history. Do you feel comfortable as a mentor being in that place that you would potentially recommend looking somewhere other than say the American Sociological Review or American Journal of Sociology for their um, for their work? Or are we still living in a time where we should look at those first? I think we're still living in a time where we should look at those first, unfortunately. And I say that because, you know, having been on some, uh, you know, job search committees recently and knowing kind of the standards that folks are looking for when they're taking a look at who it is that they might hire at their institutions, the standards are terrifying. I mean, we're talking about um, hiring for assistant professor positions and looking at folks with vitas that are as well developed as, you know, individuals who would have had associate status at that same institution a decade earlier. And so I think because we can't ignore the, the realities of the job market, first and foremost, when we're thinking about what it is that we tell junior scholars. And so I think it's important to resist these structures that we must only publish in certain journals, and we must only uh, publish through certain venues, but also being very aware of the realities that folks face when they are out on the job market. Um, And at least as of yet, I've not seen enough inroads with some of the open access journals um, and alternative publishing venues to say, let's all just jump ship and move to those. Um, It's you know, it's the same thing with our professional disciplinary bodies as well. So if we think about our professional bodies, the ASA is kind of being this large structure of sociological professionals. There are lots of tensions within ASA. There are very high dues associated with ASA membership. It's very inaccessible to a lot of folks. Um, But do we have an infrastructure developed as an alternative to ASA right now that will help you network in ways that um, ASA might be able to help you network in? Not yet. Um, and not that those things can't be created, but again, that we have to keep our eyes on the realities of of the job market and the lives that young scholars will face as they advance in their careers. I think that that's wonderful advice. And I'm a freshly, a fresh PhD that was lucky enough to be successful in the job market. So I have very little um, that I can offer other than I think that I would agree. We have to be uh, or or junior scholars should approach the job market on the one hand realistically, but also um, strategically. Uh, we need to uh, understand that we're living in uh, a structure that we have to kind of play by the rules at least uh, a little bit. And then eventually um, we can potentially get to a stage in our career where we can start to push back a little bit and write chapters on um, ways to push back. <laughs> Um, like it seems like you're doing uh, very well. Uh, uh, <laughs> a little Fulton. bit here and there. If you had one piece of advice for someone who is in graduate school in the social sciences currently, whether it be personal, professional, um, but one piece of advice, what would you tell a young graduate student? I would say, you know, try to push beyond whatever it is that you're afraid of, whether that is that you, you know, are not smart enough, or you don't know enough of the theory, or you, you know, are writing too descriptively rather than analytically, or you're afraid to talk in class, or you're afraid to send out a draft to a writing group or to your professor or to, 
you know, some peers or colleagues because it's just not quite where you want it to be yet. I would say do what you can to move beyond your own fear um, because that's the stuff that really stands in your way. It stands in the way of you making network connections with other scholars, with other peers, with getting your own work out there. Um, just send it out, get it in. I mean, I feel like so many of us deal with this kind of perfectionist thread and we really stand in our own way of getting work out and getting other people's eyes on it and getting their feedback and making it better and doing all of the drafts that you have to do to create really, really good work. And I would say, get it out there. Find somebody that can help you kind of move past your fears. Find like a I don't know, an anti-fear buddy that'll just help push you and push your work out the door so you don't sit on it too long. I do remember sitting in your office and you giving me that uh, advice uh, at the University of South Carolina. Just And look at you now. <laughs> I've, I've somewhat moved on. At least I'm not uh, uh, there anymore, which is a positive and a negative thing because I don't get to hang out with you uh, and sit in... <laughs> Uh, sit in your class. Well, this is great. It was it was a great re reunion for sure. It was. It was great to sit down and chat with you. But before we end off, I would I, I kind of want to ask you one final question of sure. what can we expect from Dr. Carla Pfeffer over the next uh, few years? Oh well, I wanted to say something like you know um, retirement or you know painting <laughs> a lot of paintings and baking cupcakes or something. But I don't seem to be able to get out of my own way when it comes to like my drive to produce things and to keep contributing to the discipline and to keep making, you know, contributions. I, I'm, I'm always complaining about doing too much, but I love what I'm doing. And so it makes it tricky. I would say I am going to be out there, you know, kind of serving as a cheerleader and, a champion for graduate students and for undergraduate students. I feel like that's something I've shifted toward um, as I've moved into, you know, promotion and tenure is really kind of pulling back a little bit on putting everything out there, sole authored, and instead working with undergrads, working with graduate students, working with peers and colleagues to co-author. And it's feeling really lovely because I no longer feel kind of this impetus to only publish sole authored pieces. And so kind of learning what my role is in various collaborations is something that I'm really invested in right now and excited about. Um, I would say keep looking for that, that I'm going to keep collaborating and looking for collaborations and finding new and exciting pro projects that don't bore me and that I don't feel are going to bore other people. Wonderful. And if, if we've got some budding uh, sociologists or budding scholars uh, listening and they want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? So they can probably most easily reach me over email. So um, I'm at my entire last name, Pfeffer, C at mailbox.sc.edu. Great. Well, uh, Dr. Pfeffer, Carla, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was amazing to have you on the show. It really felt uh, this was really special to me personally um, because of uh, such an instrumental, uh, you had such an instrumental role in my career. So I just want to thank you for that as well as coming on the show. Well, thank you, Derek. You were definitely one of our star students and you keep on being a superstar. So it was wonderful to be back, to be able to chat, chat with you and just to join you here. This was great. Thank you. I don't know about the star student, but uh, I'm, I'm living, I'm making my way. <laughs>
so are you going to be at ASA this year? Are we going to see yeah. one another? Yeah. If you met, so if you met, like, where can you literally find me? You can find me at ASA. I'll be there in Philly. We're going to be doing the pre-conference, the sexualities pre-conference, which I've been really, really centrally involved in um, putting together. And I'm super excited about. So the theme of this pre-conference is sexualities, race, and empire, resistance in an uncertain time. So this is going to be amazing. It's going to be August 9th and 10th, just before um, ASA. So you can find me there as well. Great. And this podcast is going to be up before ASA. So um, if you are in Philly or you're around Philadelphia, um, please check out the pre-conference. Come by, um, check out our panels. Come meet Carla or Ju Young or Netta from the, from the last couple episodes or myself. But without further ado, one last time. Thank you so much, Carla. Thank you, Derek. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening.